Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Dr. Oliver Thompson. So this is an impromptu podcast, given that we're all in the grip of a COVID-19 pandemic, and we're all having to adjust to new ways of living, thinking and being, including how we practice as clinicians. So today I spoke with David Horton Short-Schmidt about how communication skills have been thrust into the forefront of MSK and manual therapy practice, given that we're no longer able to touch or physically interact with our patients. David is an osteopath and graduate of the University College of Osteopathy in London. He completed his MSc in Neuroscience from King's College London, where he focused on pain research using functional MRI. He's currently in the midst of a PhD at Imperial College London, where he's part of the pain research group investigating methods to improve how we assess the effectiveness of non-drug and non-surgical therapies for pain, including manual therapies, CBT, body-mind therapies and acupuncture. So in this episode, we spoke about the shift in skills necessary for manual therapists and MSK clinicians to conduct appointments remotely, either online or via telephone, and the change in how clinicians conceptualise and see value in all aspects of their clinical work, such as the nature of treatment, their therapeutic role, and their professional identity. So I hope you enjoy the podcast and that this is a helpful way forward for clinicians looking to, to move their clinical work online. And I bring you David Hornshort-Schmidt. David, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Ollie. Thank you for having me. So this is um, this is a kind of an impromptu podcast. So maybe we can start just by you briefly telling the listeners a bit about a bit about you, your your clinical background, your academic background. Yes, absolutely. So I'm an osteopath by training and have been working in clinical practice for a few years. I've also been quite heavily engaged in academic training and, and clinical training of students. Um, and both in those fields, obviously, communication plays a, plays a major role. My current research, so I've gone back into, into academia. Uh, my current research as a PhD student at Imperial College is within a pain research group where my, my project's focus is on how we investigate whether non-drug, non-surgical therapies for pain work. So it's really around how clinical trials are designed. Um, but the current project that you're referring to is a webinar for manual therapists, physiotherapists, um, really aimed at encouraging them and making them feel comfortable with the idea of taking their clinical practice remote, remotely. So consulting with patients via the phone or video technology. And that's really obviously due to the current situation. Government and, and regulatory guidance was relatively unclear. People were still working in clinical practice as, as osteopaths, physiotherapists, chiropractors. Um, but it was quite clear that that had to, co- had to come to an end relatively soon. Um, individual practitioners were unsure whether that was still the most um, responsible thing to do. So I, as well as um, the sort of sentiment in the profession, um, was wondering on where was wondering about where to go next with that, um, because what we do is is mainly hands on clinical practice, is face to face, 
But I thought that's not quite true. There's a lot additional skills we, we have uh, or skills that we can actually use to help people via the phone and, and through video consultations. And a lot of people are actually doing that. The physiotherapy profession is qu really quite advanced with that, especially here in the UK. Um, but in other parts of manual therapy, that has not quite, um, quite dripped through yet. I was going to say, um, so, so yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's a really good kind of, um, intro into kind of where we find ourselves now. And I, I think to reference for the listeners, we're recording this on the, on the 25th of March, which is a, a Wednesday today, it's a, it's a Wednesday. Um, and you're, you're, you're right. I mean, you, you, you kind of said that, that the communication skills, so, so now it, it's now the case that people can't touch or clinicians can't touch their patients whether that's through manual therapy or acupuncture or do any kind of face-to-face -face contact. And so you so you kind of allude to the fact that there are these additional skills that now need to come to the forefront of practice rather than kind of being this kind of background context that many clinicians kind of viewed them to be kind of secondary skills or soft skills, whether it's communication skills or listening skills. It turns out, it turns out that these are now through sheer brute force of of the pandemic is to you know kind of push these to the forefront because clinicians have, you know, have got to consult their patients online or via telephone. And I think like like when when it, when it happened when we were we were kind of um, advised or or requested to close our clinical practices, you could just feel the anxiety at least amongst osteopaths on Facebook and no but no doubt other kind of manual therapists and clinicians where to to take that away to take those those hands on skills away. And to be left with this kind of bric-a-brac collection of communication skills and listening skills can be really anxiety-provoking. And you know, how do I, how can I possibly treat patients? How can I possibly help patients um, effectively without without kind of doing the hands-on stuff? So, so that was my perception that many mm -hmm. clinicians will have some anxieties or just some concerns or just be really kind of not sure about how to exist as a as a healthcare professional or manual or musculoskeletal health professional without doing hands-on. I think firstly, maybe just gives us some context of why you think that that anxiety persists. Why is it the case that healthcare professionals or manual therapists or osteopaths who are so routinely um, helping people find it quite hard not to touch or, or they kind of question their value and, and role when they're unable to perform the hands-on skills? Mm. Yeah, you're highlighting a really important point there that people aren't quite aware of the skills that they actually have in terms of in terms of communication and in my perception a lot of that comes from the way we've been trained and educated and depending on on the institution or the the time at which your your undergraduate training happened um, the emphasis in the training for manual therapists is obviously very biomedical very structure and function oriented and the communication skills sometimes comes a little bit as a as an add-on or as something you learn as you, you learn along. as you as you go along through your through your clinical experience um but rarely explicitly taught i think that's something that has been changing in the in the recent in recent years um but that underlying tendency to think very structurally um and to also see a structural change as one of the the only well, almost often almost the only solution to, to a patient's problem. Um, that is very much ingrained in the in many professions' identity. Um, so that is certainly one of the 
one of the reasons for that anxiety, but also people don't don't know what the evidence base behind remote consultations, remote physiotherapy, remote um, advice and, and self-management is. And that's something we try to, to um, target as well with that webinar. So I've been looking into, into the research there, both in terms of, you know, does the patient understand what the therapist wants to come across and vice versa. So a lot of qualitative studies, we've contacted authors of those papers and they've been very responsive and very kind to peer review essentially sections of our webinar um so that's something we can give uh give the listeners of our webinar quite directly that there's no reason to worry about um you know missing something in terms of the communication content when you do it via video or, or telephone channel um the only thing to be aware of is that things like personal interpersonal connection empathy um but also the ability to place a patient and their problem in their biopsychosocial context um, can become a little bit more challenging. But again, that's something we haven't been trained in. So now in the current situation, you're really being chucked into the deep end. And that is something to be aware of and then to embrace it as a challenge um, and really learn from, from the experience. And then if I just add the sort of more safety related aspect that often concerns uh, therapists as well, again, they're especially for long-term stable conditions uh, such as chronic low back pain, but also respiratory problems, cardiovascular issues, um, and, and mental health, the clinical outcomes of remote management and consultations are actually very much comparable um, to face-to-face -face interactions. And, and in particular, there's no indication that, one of, that the, the remote version might be dangerous in any way in terms of missing out on certain things. And that's something we do day to day in clinical practice, that case history taking, that guided, in, informed, informed um, questioning, follow up questioning. And that's something you can do just as well through the phone. Um, I think. And, and so, so thinking about where we are now and that mm -hmm. we've got clinicians that are consulting or considering to consult, see, patient, see patients in the first mm -hmm. comments, online or, or via telephone. Should we go through maybe I think maybe just be be kind of upfront to what kind of things are lost so so we can't it's probably not ideal is it really to or to have remote consultations or or to have telephone consultations in an ideal world it's for many patients and many clinicians there mm -hmm. is something about the face to face that it it adds something to that interaction mm -hmm. which which telephone or, or online doesn't. Should we start with Jane? Mm. What what kind of stuff? What are the downsides actually? And just mm. be upfront. What are we What are we missing out when we do a telephone mm. or online consultation with a patient? Well, yes, there are those things such as just sort of communicational and relational depth sometimes. Mm. But really, the benefits um, are not to be disregarded. So patients. Yeah love it. Um, patient satisfaction with remote management consultation is really high. And that comes down to, you know, what matters in a person's day. If I don't have to worry about getting into central London or where I drop my kids off whilst I'm seeing my, my physical therapist or manual therapist, those things make a big difference that we as clinicians don't actually see because we're in the clinic anyway. Um, so we don't have to worry about the parking. We don't have to worry about finding a slot in the, uh, during the day, but when people can just dial in from their living room, um, that really gives them a lot more independence and they actually feel comfortable in their, in their environment as well. They appreciate 
your availability as well. So I would actually argue that in many situations, the the benefits um, overweigh um, and and dominate, and the concerns are probably from our clinicians' side of thing uh, side of from our clinicians' perspective are probably somewhat exaggerated um, in terms of missing out on on clinically valuable information. That is something um, that, at least from the research, doesn't seem to be a huge problem. Um, yeah, so certainly not downplaying the benefits, but I think, and I think it would depend on the perceived benefits would depend on the patients, right? So, so those patients that mm. go to osteopaths, physios, chiros, explicitly for hands-on and that physical mm. interaction, yeah. and and so, and so I guess. It's, that's going to take some shift in both patients' expectations in so much mm. as that, that they may feel, well, if I'm not going to get any hands-on, if I'm not going to get touched or clicked or cracked or mm. rubbed or stroked, um, there's really no, I just don't see the need of, of talking to anyone on the phone or, or online. Um, yeah. And I, so I guess to some extent there's, there will be, one's got to consider patients' own kind of expectations and preferences and mm. what, they, what they value. And it would probably take, it would take, I guess the clinician would need to be on board, but also try and articulate to the patient why it might still be a valuable mm. interaction to have if it's not, even if it's not physical. I think, as you just said, the the key point here is the expectation of the patient, and that's something where we, as a profession, might have um, made a mistake over the last few years as well in terms of communicating um, that you can expect to, you know, get treated when you come and see us rather than that we can assist you to help yourself, which I think is really what we do dominantly anyway. Um, and that's what kind of what our treatment comes down to. So now we're in a position where we have to communicate that benefit of an expert opinion, an expert cons- consultation, be it through video or the phone, um, in helping a patient to empower, to be empowered to help themselves. Um, so that really focuses around things like uh, a medical case history taking and then a diagnosis and a triaging where you can, together with a patient, decide what the best course of treatment is for that individual patient in the current situation where potentially access access to primary care may be, may be difficult. Um, and you can point them to, to resources, you can design their own, their own exercise program, you can educate them. All these things are very valuable benefits from a personalized consultation. Um, and those are things that we do anyway, but the hands-on expectation, um, due to the fact that maybe we've exaggerated that a little bit in the past, um, that you can go and see your manual therapist and they will sort you out. That's something we now need to quite actively engage with and communicate that there's a lot of other things. And it's something we need to remind ourselves of as well, and interestingly, from a scientific point of view, that is not an issue um, because the evidence around around that structural approach um, has been criticized for a long period of time, as I'm sure many people are aware of. Um, so right now we're forced to, to engage with that and to appreciate, okay, we simply don't have the opportunity anymore to provide hands-on treatment. So let's reconsider what we're doing. Let's reconceptualize that and also let's hone our skills in in terms of what else we can do and let's engage with with communication skills let's engage with self-management programs 
Um, and let's harness that technology to develop our own clinical practice and us as a profession. That was a, I know that was a, a, a tacit plug for both your webinar and my online course in communication skills. Um, but you're, Amazing. but you're right. It's, it's, it's a, it's a case of kind of reflecting on, reflecting on kind of what, what we have and, and, and maybe, and potentially, and being honest with ourselves about how unprepared vast numbers of clinicians are for this kind of work that, that, and I, my slightly uncharitable view is that many kind of manual cl- therapist clinicians, osteopaths, et cetera, have, have kind of perpetuated beliefs mm. in patients that treatment really constitutes me doing stuff to you through kind of manual mm. therapy or, or whatever, taping or needling, all these kind of passive interventions. Mm. And anything else doesn't really constitute treatment. You mm. kind of need to have treatment or rather, rather, yeah, you, you need me to kind of input into you in order for you to get better. And then patients naturally, um, through osmosis, that they kind of develop similar kind of beliefs around what treatment is and what what their pain is and what their body's about. And now we find ourselves having to row back and say, well, actually, you, you, you kind of, you're having to contradict yourself. But all that stuff I said about treatment, that, you know, there was something wrong in your body and you had to, um, and I needed to, to, to fix it. It's actually not the case. Really, you've got to begin mm. to self-manage and educate. So you can imagine that the, you know, the clinicians might find themselves contradicting what they've said in the past, um, which can be quite challenging and, and quite humbling, I think. It is a somewhat um, uncomfortable situation <laughs> to be in. Um, but even the therapists that have been working in that self or in that patient-empowered concept before in face-to-face inter- interactions have found that, have found that challenging. Um, we are not prepared from our educational background to to do that as swiftly and as you said the models underlying what we do um don't really go with that uh very well and yes in some cases you might have to um step back a little bit and say okay there is much more to what we do mm-hmm. and maybe some of the other ideas that i've communicated in the past aren't useful here anymore so you can look at it in a very pragmatic way and say that's just what i have to deal with right now and i embrace that and learn from it um yeah yeah, yeah. and it's like, i think like you said it it's what are the options either you just don't practice and do and say well listen if mm. i can't do hands-on and i can't kind of physically touch my patient there's just it's not worth doing anything um i mm. think i think pragmatically and probably economically most most clinicians will think well i've got to do something i've got patients and yeah not not economically is probably unfair but they have patients which they likely really care about and want to help. Mm. And so that compassion will, will kind of drive them or motivate them to begin to, as you said, develop skills in communication or education or listening um, because they because they have to and that's where they find themselves. Exactly. We still want to be there for, for yeah. our patients and they that kind of personal care is still going to be in a lot of, there's still going to be a high demand for that, especially since people are now isolated. For some of our patients, we used to be the only ones touching them in a month uh, when they came in for their appointment. And now we might be one of the few people they can actually talk to yeah. and who, who care about them. And and so given, things- given, sorry, given that the, we're all isolating mm. ourselves from each other and there's even more social isolation, um, mm. and there's, there's a kind of a, a place for more social interaction online mm. or, or you know, clinical interaction mm. on, online. Some of the feedback we got from participants in in the webinar was also that doubt: is that worth paying for? You know, am mm. I am I just mm. on the phone to someone and then charge them 
30 pounds or how much ever how, how much people want to charge for it is that worth doing it and that's why i've highlighted initially in our conversation that there are so many skills around the clinical diagnosis and decision making and you know all the medical background that we as practitioner take for granted but that for a patient you know that look in a patient's eye when you say first of all i think the key message here is it's nothing dangerous yeah. i'm sure because i've done this and this and this and that you know that face of a patient that's yeah. just been reassured we can't appreciate how much people worry about their physical pain and discomfort we don't usually know the background of where they come from what their experiences are um but just yeah. knowing that and and having being reassured in that way is is a is a really valuable thing and, and i think yeah like you said it's again it's it's your the feedback from your your webinar participants that you know, is this really worth it why would someone pay money just to have some advice it's all about mm. kind of where they see the value and if 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 your perception is that well really intervention hands-on intervention that's where this that's where the value lies is, is being able to do this thing to patients which is very hard to do and it's, it's taken me a long time to learn and it's highly effective and they mm. they desire it if that's your position then of course anything you know not doing that or think well, what's the point to that i think in you're going further yes that that kind of medical triage that reassurance that it's it's okay that's that in itself has 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 value but i think that 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 there's that listening of the patient's narrative, exploring those beliefs, trying to, you know, develop their confidence or perceptions of kind of ability and, and function and that those kind of skills, those more psychologically informed skills, there's there's value there too. Um which I think, yeah, this is kind of untapped untapped value, I think. Absolutely. Um I couldn't couldn't agree with more with that. Um I think what it comes down to as well in terms of the the barriers to to embracing that is that we and patients just like simple solutions and psycho psychology informed practice self-management empowerment of the patient is not the easy solution um which sometimes the biomedical model does offer so that requires facing that reality both from for the patient and and the practitioner but i think intuitively after years of clinical practice we all know that there are few cases only where the solution as is as simple as doing a certain many uh, manipulative uh, technique for example and now we're really in a position where we need to think about how can we get the patient to let go of that desire for an easy for an easy solution and accept responsibility and that's where we come in where we can pick them up and 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 take them from where they are and take them to that positive outlook and and discuss with them very individually what the options are for their for their for the approach to their discomfort to their problem um and where we put them into a position where they can make up their own mind what they think might work for them and we are really more more mediator uh, rather than the therapist uh, that you go and see and who sorts you out, which in a way is is nice. I like that idea of patient empowerment, um, and I don't need that sort of sometimes rather ego driven. I can get you better um, idea in my clinical practice, but I acknowledge the the difficulties with that. Um, it's much less cool <laughs> to, mm -hmm. to you know 
tell the patient this, these are the things you can do to help yourself rather than going, uh, ba bum. And then the patient is sorted, is sorted and, and tells all your, all, all their friends about it. But on the other side, this communication based approach is what people value where they feel seen and heard and appreciated. Um, so the kind of connection you can, the relationship you can build with the patient is much deeper. Um, so it changes, it shifts the clinical practice. It requires honing in on certain skills, but it also allows you much more, a much broader practice and a much more, in my personal experience, in my view, a much richer experience as well with the patient. So, so what would you say to, to manual therapists, uh, MSK clinicians that say, well, you know, I just, to, 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 to the absence of, of touch or palpation, palpation mm. just kind of almost blinds me to anything useful about this patient. You know, I can't, I cannot really know anything about this patient or very, or, or, or know anything which is worth knowing without being able to touch mm. the patient, to palpate the muscle, to palpate, palpate the joints, to really get a sense of their body using, using my hands. What would you say? Cause, cause there will be many manual therapists that will say, you know, the, the, it's these sorts of skills that, that, that inform my clinical reasoning and inform my decision making, and without mm. them, I just can't really make any any reasonable mm. decision. If I can't palpate that sacrum, I don't mm. know what's going on with this patient. What would you say to that? Well, it's true that in clinical practice, that is one of the sources of information that you rely on, and maybe we've overemphasized the importance of that source of information. We know from scientific study that is a really it's a really unreliable source of information to start with, um, as no matter how we perceive how good we perceive our patient to be, the the evidence there is really clear that it's not replicable. Neither when I do it, do the same thing tomorrow, nor when you do it now and I do it ten minutes after. Um, so that again is maybe an uncomfortable truth. Um, but even even if you practice in a way where palpation forms the cornerstone of your one of the cornerstones of your of your treatment there are so many other sources of input um, that you take up into your clinical reasoning almost subconsciously and there's so much pattern recognition going on there's so much clinical reasoning and differential diagnosis but also um, almost even people that rely on their palpation heavily would probably say i kind of know what that patient's calf if it's a knee problem or low back is likely to feel like when I touch it. Um, so does that really tell us that much? And does it really guide our approach in such a specific way that we need it? Um, and what are the common things that we tend to do in certain in certain clinical scenarios? And can we hone it, can we focus on on those for the time being at least until we until we get the opportunity again to work hands-on and I'm the first to say I'm really looking forward to my to my first post-COVID hands-on <laughs> patient because I, I appreciate that both as a as a therapist but also for my for my patients that touch is a very very valuable and powerful experience. But simply in the current situation, yeah, it's nothing we can and should provide, and we can do it again when the time comes. But maybe by then we've acknowledge that there are so many other things that are important and maybe we, we've got much better with those skills and then can add our preparation and our hands-on 
making us more more complete uh, practitioners with a broader scope of practice. So I do see the opportunity here rather than 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 the danger and the threat. For, for sure. And I think um, you and I have said, and I've said to, to others that all of us, all of those which have been really kind of promoting a, a more bias successfully orientated or communication focused or relationship focused approach to musculoskeletal care, um, you know, throughout the years, whether it's through publishing or, or doing research or teaching, you always feel that you've had, there's been limited success or no one's really getting it or clinicians really aren't kind of buying any of this stuff. It's taken mm. a, a kind of pandemic to, to really you know, pure brute force to, to emphasize the, the need for some of these skills. And I'm just thinking about once we come out of this, this kind of dark tunnel of COVID-19 and you're right, if, if it is the case that a, a reasonably, a reasonable size proportion of our profession, osteopathy, but other professions, physiotherapy and, and chiropractic, have now skilled up or, or A, recognized the value of communication and language skills and B, address some of those those skill deficits. We come through this, this period and you've now got clinicians who are kind of on board with, with a much more holistic form of clinical practice and also have developed skills beyond pure manual therapy technical skills you imagine you know mm. just having a uh, having a kind of blue sky thinking how how msk care would look if we've got clinicians with with a much greater proportion are now skilled up and coherent in in these in these different kind of personal type skills or communication skills mm. yeah and i don't think we're going to leave anyone behind with that um no matter what our clinical practice was before COVID-19. Um, we all have a certain level of skills that we can still use now. And that's yeah. why I really advocate for for a pragmatic dive into the deep end with the technology that that can enable you to still care for your patients, to still look after your patients, um, and really get to grips with the practicalities. Think about how you can set that up with your with your patients. Think about the process the patient goes through from booking to to payment to follow-ups and then try it out on a family member and just get going and, and think about what the things are that you can still offer to the patient, structure that a little bit, think about resources you can point them to. Um, no matter how your clinical practice was beforehand, those are things you can do and I would argue you're going to find that quite an enjoyable process. You're going to find that patients like it. You're going to find that you get a new challenge where you can be creative uh, in and and which, you know, makes the whole thing a little bit more bearable at the moment. Yeah. But also, yeah, creates an opportunity for everyone involved. And I, um, I, I, was just, probably, I probably think most people are going to stick with a certain element of remote consultations once this is over. Yeah, and certainly, certainly some of the, at least in the spirit of remote consultations, i.e. that... that even once we, we people that p- continue to do face-to-face consultations after after this pandemic, um, and they're bringing these new skills into their clinical practice, what I'm really hoping is that they really will form the basis. They'll be kind of you know, really at the forefront of practice. As I said before, mm. my view is that in in much most of manual therapy, these skills which are which are, are just kind of set in the backdrop and they're kind of, oh, these are contextual factors and they're kind of soft skills and, you know, they're kind of supplementary to the main skills, which are, you know, manual therapy or diagnostics or, 
or kind of a knowledge around anatomy and biomechanics, all that stuff. It now turns out this is almost flipped in a way. But I just thought I'd, I'd touch on, mm. you know, if we if we suppose that um, that and uh, that those clinicians kind of do take these these skills on board and they get through this pandemic, and we want, we talked about what are some of the drawbacks perhaps of a, of adopting a much more empowerment slash education slash communication based mm. approach to to clinical practice. And I had a a couple of mind and um did you want to touch on some of the or not necessarily drawbacks but at least the the perceived drawbacks or some of the concerns that clinicians might have when they're not mm. placing manual therapy and technical skills at the forefront of their practice there are certainly challenges in empowering the patient because it means they don't rely on you anymore and that for us as people clinicians in private practice boils down to an economic question often Mm. Uh, so the question of rebooking patients, getting the follow-up appointments and, and filling your diary, that's something we actually been taught in, in, in school. And that is something, um, we have to do to maintain, maintain our business. And when we now suddenly turn around and tell the patient, look, it might feel very severe right now, but it's nothing dangerous and it's likely to go away by itself then that patient won't book in for another six or 10 appointments. Uh, they might come back two or three times and that will be the end of that for you as a, as a therapist, potentially if we stop there, I think. And that's something where I see educational institutions in a certain responsibility to provide their students with, with ideas of, of a evidence-based and, and valuable long and medium term uh, management plan that's something we kind of brush over and don't really don't really consider but what does it mean what can i still offer a patient where my education and my reassurance has been effective where might they still need me as a clinician six months down the line 12 months down the line and telephone consultations actually or remote consultations actually allow you to still check in check in with them or even using apps uh, where they where they maintain a level of contact, which has been shown to be important. So with that medium long-term management, things like peer support, so linking your patients up into some sort of community, but also direct the direct ability to contact a practitioner without having to travel to their clinical practice, um, but simply offering schemes where that long and medium-term management forms part of the initial attempt to help someone recognizing that their problem will shift, recognizing that your aim is to put them into a position to help themselves. Um, and already at the beginning in the first appointment, thinking about where do I want them to be in six months and how can I still help them then communicate that initially rather than going from appointment to appointment, uh, because that really only works when at the end of the appointment, there still is a little problem that I need to fix again yeah. at some point. Um, and it's, I think it's starting, it's, it's really starting from a position of this person with the right support can self-manage and recover for themselves. So that's that starting position mm -hmm. rather than, I think that the, the current starting position for many is this person is dysfunctional and disabled and needs me to, to, to kind of fix them. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of slightly different, different positions. But it, it it will be, and I know the the phrase paradigm shift is is used overused, perhaps. But I'm going to use it again. 
Um, but it is a real shift, isn't it? Because you've got, because many education institutions in, in manual therapy have a business model and the business model for, for students to, to, to learn is that mm. which are based on the underlying premise that the, that the body and spine is dysfunctional and requires physical intervention through manipulation, mm. whatever. If that's your, that's your, that's your premise, then it, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? To have 10, 20, it's totally rational to mm. have 20 sessions. If, if your position is that I've got to you know, relocate the bones or adjust the spine or whatever it is. So it mm. really will, will, will create a, a, some underlying beliefs need to change in order for that practice to be, and the education mm. to be rolled out. Yeah, but if you look closer, those those beliefs are actually contradictory to what we take as our fundamental tenets of yeah, the yeah. body's power to help itself. Um, how does that fit yeah, with we're, we're, needing me to intervene all the time? Um, that, that's just one but, of many contradictions in, in osteopathy and, and, and elsewhere. Mm. But I think what's important to point out as well is you're not going to run out of business with, with that because the patients you're going to see and that you're going to maintain close contact with are going to be much more challenging and they might actually be the ones that you're helping then when who you're not helping really right now um so yes the the acute neck pain might not come back regularly Mm. but the person that has heard that you are taking a very individual and evidence-based approach to especially chronic conditions uh, they might come and they might actually come with a slightly different experience because they've been through that biomedical model yeah. most of the time and they've experienced that they get short-term relief but then it comes back um, and they've traveled lots of different therapy uh, therapists and therapies they will be on board when you say look these are the things which i base my treatment on my aim is to empower you they already know that that doesn't work without them putting a lot of effort in yeah. um, so that's why I'm saying you need to initially, before the appointment, already think about a roadmap um, that can take patients like that out of their out of their recurrent and chronic uh, discomfort and pain. And that's why I'm saying there's a, that it's a completely different challenge, mm. but it's in a way more challenging than than finding the lesion and fixing it. And I think I want to say something about um, how clinicians feel about doing this. So. So there's something about professional identity, isn't there? There's something about doing mm. certain interventions or doing certain um, ass- um, assessment techniques or thinking about patients in a certain way, which mm. define the clinician and give them some sense of of being being an osteopath or being a physio or being a chiropractor. And you kind of get mm. the sense that the minute you go remote and or, or you know, remote online or, or telephone, lots of mm. those skills which are which are closely tied to the identity of the, of the professional, they, mm. they're obviously thrown out the window because they can't do them. Mm. And so you just imagine some of the anxieties that clinicians might have that, well, I can't really behave or enact this, this identity of being an osteo or a physio chiro. Mm. Mm. Um, I'm really just giving advice and reassurance and self-management um, kind of uh, plans and, and listening. That's not really osteopathic or that's not really how that's not that doesn't resonate there's no there's no expression of chiropractic philosophy necessarily which is any different from each other so it's just what do you what do you say to that is that this is kind of atheistic mm. musculoskeletal practice which isn't tied to any particular dogma or or set of uh, principles i recognize that the question of personal identity also centers around 
the fact that that's something that we've been doing for years, that I have been doing for years in clinical practice, and now suddenly uh, someone questions that. And if you look at how change happens, the first thing that happens when someone's confronted with contradictory, contradictory evidence, especially when it when it impinges on their sense of identity, is denial, and then anger. So suddenly the the information around you might have been not quite right becomes overwhelming you can't overlook it anymore people become angry then they bargain and they say yes but i can i can do it mm-hmm. or my patients are different um and then most people up to now have sort of stayed on those first three stages and covid-19 has the interesting side effect in exposing those those yeah. contradictions and have chuck people right into chaos and depression depression mm-hmm. and, and resignation where they're thinking of what am I going to do now? And that's exactly where we want to where mm-hmm. I want to pick them up yeah. and say there is a way out of that. And then the next step is actually acceptance, saying, okay, simply because of the circumstances, it doesn't matter if I've been right or wrong previously. And just to get it clear, my my motivation is not to tell people that they have been wrong in what they've been doing. Um but the idea is that there is more to it. So if we accept that and are open to that, we can actually reemerge with something. Yeah, there's a way forward. Greater. Yeah, there is a way forward, yeah. and that is exciting. That's challenging, um, but it's also the way to go. And and this situation really um, you know, brings that to to a crucial point of decision. And most people will have to make the decision to embrace that part of their practice. And that's where I really see the opportunity in the, in the current situation as as difficult as it is from all sorts of other aspects, including financial financial problems that people are facing at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's a real kind of pivotal point for all of MSK, um, but mm. our, our profession um, as well, osteopathy. David, how do you think, so thinking about language and communication, which is obviously the, the focus of this podcast, how, how mm. might clinicians think about their language and communication when working remotely with patients experiencing back pain or musculoskeletal pain? People are wondering what their intervention might be when they can't provide hands-on treatment and language amongst all the other abilities to be very creative in terms of what you recommend patients to do and how to manage themselves. Language really forms part of your treatment it does anyway, but in this situation now, where, with remote and telephone consultations, it really becomes one of the main vehicles of, of what you're trying to convey, and it becomes the main way of influencing the patient. So choice of language is more crucial than ever, and the kind of messages you convey very subtly as well. So um, is it a harmful message that you're actually conveying? Is it putting the patient into a situation where they need to worry that it comes back or where they need to worry about you know, not being able to do anything about it? Or is it an empowering message where the way out is kind of implicit as well? That takes a lot of reflection on our own part in terms of considering which words we use, it's things like dysfunction, for example. Yeah. Um, if I tell a patient on the on the phone, well, you know, it's nothing bad, but you might have a slight dysfunction there. To us, that sounds benign, but to patients... It sounds medicalized and, and wrong and, and pathological. And there's nothing in the current situation they can do about it. They can't even go and pay you to do something about it. Yeah. So that message becomes even more nocebic to link to your 
to your previous podcast, which was fascinating, it becomes even more harmful and, and pathological pathologizing um, than when you do it in a face-to-face interaction. So thinking about the choice of words and the message you're trying to convey is crucial in those circumstances. Yeah, I think that's great. I think so. the podcast you were referring to was with Dr. Valdi Palson about the sacroiliac joint. And I think what's interesting is that that you're right. You've got patients who have been primed to to be disempowered, i.e. the Mm. clinician just fixes and does stuff for them, finding themselves at home unable to to seek that that care if you like that that um intervention from the patient who so they're perceptively they're kind of helpless and i, I just you know the, my osteopaths or physio my car is not around i can't see them they're kind of maybe psychologically a bit more more vulnerable than, than they were and then the clinicians on the on the other end of the phone or an online consultation saying yeah yeah it sounds like you really just you know you just kind of dysfunctioned your sacred oh, or your yeah or, oh yeah and yeah. and and that's bad enough in itself, face to face. But at least the clinician can do something about it, or at least pretend to do something about it. But in this case, you've now got the the, the, the patient thinking, "Oh my god, I've got this you know wobbly sacroiliac joint, or my spine is out of alignment, and there's nothing I can do." And so mm. there is, you know, there's there's a potential scope for a bit more kind of fear, isn't there? Um, in in in, in light of the patient, you know, being in a slightly different situation than, than before. Yeah, but conversely, language language and choice of messages can be therapeutic as well yeah. so using it in a way that shows the patient that you care thinking about effective reassurance um and then conveying almost educational messages educating them in what it is that is likely going on and what it is not linking those two the the sort of i feel and hear you with the you need to understand um linking those two is in itself an intervention and can put the patient into a position where they can go with it and feel a bit more more at rest and at ease. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and we should, you know, mm-hmm. clinicians should be, should be aware of their course. I would say this, but they should be acutely aware of their language in in all interactions with a patient. It's mm-hmm. just interesting to think about the particular um, subtleties of remote language, if you like, or online consultations. Yeah. And, and checking with a patient whether what they've understood is what you wanted to, co- to get across becomes more and more important with um, remote consultations as well. Making sure that you didn't, you know, not deliberately, but that you didn't convey harmful messages is, is crucial at the end of the, the appointment. You don't want to hang up and the patient thinking, oh, God, what am I going to do now? Can you direct listeners where they can find your, your excellent webinar? That can be found through the CPD, so Continued Professional Development site of the University College of Osteopathy. So if you just Google that, you'll be directed to the webinar. And I'll put all the, um, all, all the links will be in my show notes. That's great. Exactly. And you can follow me on Twitter where I'll keep you updated. That's the Twitter handle, um, which Ollie's going to share as well, hopefully. David yeah. Hosh. I'm not going to try and spell that, <laughs> um, let alone my surname. Um, so that's where we can keep you updated. And there's going to be upcoming seminars as well in or upcoming webinars over the next few days. And then we're probably going to record that at some point and make it available to everyone. So that whole project was free. It's nonprofit, but it has the benefit of, of being informally peer reviewed by people who have experience with that and who know what they're talking about. And it's really designed to take people out of that point of, of what am I going to do yeah. now and, and offer them 
an opportunity and a solution. Brilliant. David, thanks so much for talking to me today. Stay well. Stay well, Oli. Thank you for spending that hour with me. And I hope the listeners enjoyed that. Cheers. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.